0: So we want them to inhabit us, inhabit this church service, inhabit you. Hallelujah. So every once in a while, we just got to praise them. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing unto you. As I bring forth the word with boldness, clarity, and simplicity, I thank you that you will make me accurate. In the Word of God as I preach it this morning, Lord. I thank you for each and every one that's listening in this house and in our Facebook family. I ask you to give them ears to hear, hearts to believe and receive, eyes that can see. And we thank you and praise you that this is going to be a life-changing message this morning. People's lives are going to be enhanced and enriched. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Hallelujah. if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 2 Timothy, the third chapter. We looked at this last week. We're talking about signs of the end time, preparing for the end, and I want to continue doing that today, and maybe in the weeks to come, the Lord willing. uh, I think it's time to preach this end time message. I think that we're closer now than we've ever been, and I think that we need to do some things to get prepared. Amen. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 it says this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come this know he's emphasizing that we need to know this that in the last days the days we're living in right now perilous times will come and how many knows that we are living not only in the last days but we're living in the last of the last days I think that we're that close to the return of the Lord. And I know some of us, maybe in our Facebook family, don't really understand what I'm talking about when I say we're living in the last of the last days. But it means that the church age is coming to a close. The age of grace is coming to a close. And we're close to the rapture or the catching away of the church to heaven. The Bible tells us, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're the ones going to run right out of that grave. As soon as he shouts, as soon as he sounds that trumpet, as soon as they hear their name, and the redeemed will hear their name, they are going to run out of that grave. Hallelujah. And then he says, and then which we are alive, then... We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. They're going to have a six-foot head start on us, and then we're going to catch up with them, and we're all going into the air to meet the Lord in the air, and uh, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That means we're going to heaven at that time, and there's going to be seven years of tribulation here on the earth, but we're not going to be here for it. We're going to be enjoying the Lord's company in heaven, and we're going to be sitting around the table called the the, the Supper of the Lamb, hallelujah. <laughs> I'll get it together here in a minute. I'm still a little bit excited, hallelujah. <laughs> the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, hallelujah. But I'm not, I'm not telling you this this morning as though it's some kind of an escape for the church. This is not for the church to escape the earth. I'm telling you this because it's time for the church to rise and shine, it's time to ramp up our efforts in getting the lost saved. It's time to get busy gathering as many souls into the kingdom of God and unto the final harvest as we possibly can before Jesus comes. It's like running a race. Uh, as you see the finish line, you don't slow down and you don't lay back. You don't relax. As a matter of fact, you you give it that extra kick, because you know the race is almost over, and you got to give it your best. Your strongest effort is at the end. It's not how you start, it's how you end. So at the end, your strongest effort is to give it that final kick, that last oomph, to ramp it up just a little bit more, and cross that finish line as strong as you possibly can. And that's the reason for the warnings of the last day. That's the reason that God wants to, us to know the signs of the time, not so that we get Go, whew, we're getting ready to escape this place. No, it's so that you ramp up your game. It's so that you get out there and you get soul saved, starting with your own family. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How do I know we're close? Because the Bible gives us many warning signs that point to the last days. You can look at the signs and you can tell where you're at. The prophets gave us signs. Jesus gave us signs. Yes. The apostles gave us signs. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day because they weren't aware of the signs. And a lot of people say, well, you don't know when the Lord's coming. No, I don't. But I know he's close because he gave us signs to let us know he's close. No man knows the day or hour, but we have signs to let us know that he's getting close. Hallelujah. He told them in Matthew 16 and 3, you say, today it will be stormy. For the sky is red and overcast. In other words, you could tell the weather by looking at the sky. And then he rebuked them and says, You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And that's why I know he wants us to know the signs of the times because he wants us to interpret the signs, or he would have never said that. Well, that's what we're going to do today. And in the next few weeks, if the Lord's willing, and we're going to look at the warning signs that we have pointing to the last days. And today we're going to see that we're not only close, but we're in the last of the last days. And we're going to be able to tell it by the signs of the time. We, we're going to know today that the Lord is nearer than we think he is. Hallelujah. Amen. We started looking at some of them last week. So hopefully in the next few weeks, I want to go deeper and more and get into the more prophetic of his return. And we're going to look at actual signs in the heavens and on the earth to show that he's close. Again, not so that we can relax and say, we're out of here in a short time, but so that we can get ramped up, get to our pastors and our churches and see what we could do to help the pastors, help the ministry to get more souls saved and into the church. That's what we're doing it for. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we we were looking at them last week, and we're going to continue with 2 Timothy 3 this week. Uh, But before we do, what is a warning sign? It's something that tells you what's ahead. It's something that tells you what you can expect in the near future. Uh, As you're going down the the road, you'll see a sign that says, Warning, right curve ahead. Warning, lane closing ahead. Warning, speed limit is going to drop to 35 miles an hour. Warning, school zone ahead. So what are the signs telling us? What's ahead? What's in the near future? What we need to prepare for. I don't want to go in a 35-mile-an-hour curve doing 70 miles an hour. So we need to pay attention to the warning signs so that we can prepare for what we need to do when we get to to the place it's talking about so the apostle paul in 2 timothy chapter 3 by inspiration of the holy spirit because all scripture is inspired he says warning entering the last days and then he gives us some of the warning signs to show us when we're close and when we've arrived you know another sign that you might see is indianapolis 100 miles well that's telling me that i'm getting close to indianapolis And then I'll get to a sign that says, Welcome to Indiana. First I'll get to a sign that says, Welcome to Indiana. Then I start looking for Indianapolis. And then pretty soon it says, Welcome to Indianapolis. So I know I've arrived. Why? Because the signs told me I was getting closer and closer until I got there. So in 2 Timothy 3, 1 again, he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, that means they say bad things about God, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, their word is no good, false accusers, they're pointing fingers and accusing people of things that aren't true, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. Are you starting to see some of the signs? Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Don't have anything to do with them. They're ungodly. One translation says, verse 5, like this. Instead of loving God, they will love pleasure they will go on pretending to be devoted to God, but they will refuse to let that devotion change the way they live, stay away from those people. Yes. You see it in politics all the time. Now we got congressmen and women that are, are holding the Bible and wanting to pray. And, and you know, they never cracked a book in, in 40 years. They know You know they never prayed, they don't even know how to pray to God. But all of a sudden now, because it's vogue, they're going to take a Bible out and quote a scripture that they have no idea what it means. But before we continue, I want to clarify something this morning. When I use the words they, them, those people, I'm not talking about black or white. I'm not talking about rich or poor. I'm not talking about male or female. I'm talking about the same thing that Paul is talking about. I'm talking about the ungodly. Amen. God only sees two groups of people, lost and saved, godly and ungodly, righteous and unrighteous, saint and sinner, right and wrong, lightness and darkness, Jew and Gentile. God never sees race. God doesn't judge skin. He judges sin. And I want to say this to all Christians and all pastors and leaders. We should have God's heart on this issue of racism that's so prevalent in this day and time. We cannot take sides here when it comes to racism. We should be careful what's printed on our t-shirts and the mantra that we go around reciting, the little phrases that are uh, so popular today. I'm not even going to mention them. But it should never make a reference, your little t-shirt, your little mantra should never make a reference to the color of somebody's skin. It should have nothing to do with skin color. Uh, It has nothing to do with somebody's national origin, creed, color, anything like that. Uh, Christ died for every race, every creed, every color, every national origin, every person. Christ died for every one of them, and he didn't die for skin, he died for sin. Right. Amen. 1 John 3:15 and 16 says, "Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You hate a brother or sister, God looks at you like you're a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Somebody might say, well, this is talking about the church. This is talking about born-again believers because John is talking about brothers and sisters. If they're not born again, they're not a brother or sister to us. But you're wrong. They are. You know, people may look or seem different than you, but every person is a child of God. Every person is a child of God. I didn't say every person was born again and going to heaven. I said every person is a child of God because every one of us came from Adam's loins, and you can't change that. I don't care what your background is, who you say you are, what your nationality is, what your color is. You all came from Adam and Eve. That's why we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. You might not be saved yet. You might not be born again. You might not be going to heaven, but you're still a brother or sister. Amen. Amen. And just as Jesus loved you enough to die for you and give you everlasting life, we're obligated to love and respect one another and stand together against not only racism, but every injustice that you see going on in the earth today. We're to Uh, stand against that. And if we're going to side with anybody, we better be siding with God. We better have God's heart on this, and we better be teaching it from the pulpits, and leaders better be doing it by example to the sheep, because this is God's heart, and this is the way God thinks, and this is what God wants. Amen. I mean, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. Even though we all look different, we might be different colors that come from different places, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. And I'm tired of people accusing other people, accusing me of being a racist because they don't really know me or understand something that I said. And more times than not, the one that's accusing someone else is more of a racist than the one that they're accusing. I'm just going to tell the truth this morning. Is that all right? The Holy Ghost and the Lord himself could be accused and have been accused of racism. And if you remember the story of the Syrophoenician woman, the Greek woman, who had a daughter that was vexed with the devil and came to Jesus and asked that he would cast that devil out of her daughter. So the Holy Ghost referred to this woman specifically by race. And that's something that uh, is being done today, but it's, it's being done in a wrong vein. It's being done in a wrong frame of mind, a wrong state of mind. We shouldn't, you know, when uh, we re- the reporters report a crime on the news or, or, or a murder or something on the news, they'll say a black man, a white man, a white woman. Who cares what color they are? Sin is sin. I don't care what color they are. They pull the trigger. They're guilty of murder. Amen. It has nothing. To, why bring in somebody's color or where they come from? Uh, if they're a Mexican, an American, or what? If they're a citizen of this country, they're an American. Color has nothing to do with it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But the Holy Ghost referred to this woman specifically by race. He said the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician, and then had, had the nerve to mention her nation. A, a, a woman, a Greek, a Syrophoenician, a nation, all racist words today. She's begging Jesus to cast a devil out of her daughter. And Jesus told her it wasn't right to give her something that only belonged to the Jews. Then he called her a dog. Yes. A dog, he called her. Yes. He referred to her race and then referred to the Jews as being a more superior race because they were going to get something that she didn't deserve. Do you see how easy this thing could go south? How many of you would still be in the story after that? Uh Right here, most preachers would have been accused of racism. What did you call me, preacher? Who do you think you are? You're a Jew. You're prejudiced. You don't like Syrophoenicians. You don't like Greeks. You don't like blacks. You don't like Mexicans. You don't like Italians. you got a problem with race. You're a bigot. Hallelujah. And it would be easy to accuse Jesus of being a racist. And he has been accused of that. And it's because we don't understand why he said what he did and I don't have time to get into it, it would be a whole nother sermon for me to go into the uh, vernacular of that day and, and uh, discern the words that were spoken in the Greek and what they mean and everything. But I'm just going to tell you this. If the Lord said it, it had to be right. Because He died for people like that. He died for you and me. His love is unconditional. And really, that's all we need to know. We need to know that the Lord would never purposely offend somebody or be a racist right. it's just not in his dna Amen. we know he loves everybody unconditionally besides that if jesus calls you a dog you better start scratching and barking right. why because you're a dog <laughs> hallelujah. hallelujah and that goes for me too if he called me a dog I'd say, right. i say bow wow i'm a dog hallelujah And sometimes when people don't like what was said, or they don't understand it, or maybe they don't know the whole story, or maybe they know what was said is true, but it doesn't fit their narrative, and they don't want to accept it, so they call you a racist. When they can't make an excuse for their behavior, or they can't make an excuse, or, or make you look bad about something that you said or did, that their last... Draw is to call you a racist. Everybody's a racist nowadays. But this woman had faith, humility, and bulldog tenacity. And when the Lord called her a dog, she didn't make excuses. She didn't accuse him of being a racist. She said, Truth, Lord. You called me a dog, and I am a dog. She recognized that as truth, and she was willing to change it. Hallelujah. And because of that, she's still in the story you wouldn't be. And her daughter got delivered and healed. Yeah. Now, she could have called him a racist and got all in the huff and everything and denied the truth. But she would have never got her daughter set free. And I'll just give you a little hint. Why would an innocent little girl like her daughter have a devil to begin with? You just think about that for a little while. She had something to do with that. The mother had something to do with, that, with her lifestyle that caused that little girl to have a devil jump on her. So, Jesus knew what he was saying when he called her a dog. She was living like one. But anyway, everything, uh, I mean, just because someone doesn't agree with you doesn't make them a racist. Uh, you know, are there people that are racist and bigoted and prejudiced? Absolutely. I mean, you'd have to be stupid to think that there aren't. But you'd also have to be equally stupid to think that it's not on both sides of the aisle. It's not just one denomination, one race, one color that's prejudiced. It's on both sides of the aisle. We both have works to do. Everything is not about color of someone's skin. And as long as I'm already in hot water, I'm going to swim around a little bit longer... And I'm going to tell you something else. There is no such thing as a Christian racist in God's eyes. You cannot be both. You are either a Christian or you are a racist. There's no 50-50 blend. You cannot be both. And if if you're a racist, you're not even a Christian. I wouldn't even call you a Christian. So you better get that stuff out of your system. God don't appreciate it. And if you call yourself a Christian, like we read, and hate anyone for any reason, especially of the color of their skin, you either need to get saved and become a Christian, or you need a long dip in the Holy Ghost. My wife and I don't have a racist bone in our bodies, and yet we've been accused of being racist. I've been called a cracker before. I don't know what crackers have to do anything except if you got some peanut butter, but I've been called a cracker before, and I don't have a racist bone in my body, and I know one thing for sure, racism has to be taught. Nobody's born a racist. It has to be taught, and it was never taught in my house, and it's not taught or practiced in this church either. If I see any signs of it, I squash it immediately. And the next time you hear me make reference to they, them, those people in general terms, I'm not referring to the color of their skin or where they came from or their national origin. I'm talking about the ungodly, those that are living lives with no sign of God in their lives. That's who I'm talking about. So please don't accuse me of being a racist. Now, having said that, (laughs) <laughs> let's try to move on with our lesson in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Like Pastor Flint says in Freeport, Illinois, he said, let's move on a little bit further. <laughs> I want to focus on the word unthankful. It's translated from the Greek word, and I'll probably butcher it, but echaristos uh, or something like that. But what's interesting is in the Greek language, a small a in front of a word reverses the meaning of that word. Isn't that interesting in the Greek language? In other words, if you remove the a that's in front of it, the definition changes from unthankful to thankful. And the little a takes the word thankful to unthankful, and it works just like our word un- it means that a person is without thanks, or he's ungrateful, or he's without gratefulness. But here's the, here's the most interesting part about it. In the Greek, it means even more. It actually means that they were at one time thankful, but have become unthankful. So that word, erichostos, or whatever it is, as it's used in this verse, refers to a group of people who were at one time thankful and grateful and appreciative, who have become unthankful and unappreciative. And that's a big difference. It's not like, you know, unthankful is easy to figure out because it means that we're not thankful. But in the Greek, that little a means so much more because it it not only means that we're unthankful, but it means that at one time we were thankful and become that way. I wonder what made us become that way. Probably not just any one reason, probably a lot of different reasons. But the way that the Greek word is used here portrays a selfish, dissatisfied person who did little to gain or earn what they possess and who are never satisfied with what they have and always want more. Here's your sign. They've lost their sense of appreciation and gratitude. They had it at one time, but they lost it. They've become that way. They actually believe they have been dealt a bad hand in life, and they have somehow feel like they've been wronged by everybody. It's everybody else's fault that they're not successful except theirs because they don't possess more than they presently have. They develop a false sense of entitlement. They feel that they deserve a paycheck but don't want to work to earn it. They go to school and feel they're entitled to a diploma just because they went, but they don't want to have to study or pass the required tests along the way. They think they're entitled to an education and the government should pay for it. And when, it, and when we say government, we say the taxpayers. Because where does the government get their money when they ain't printing it? They feel like they're entitled to free health care, and the government owes it to them. Who is them? The ungodly. This as a whole describes our present generation. We've got the signs for it. Children that were raised in an environment where they weren't made to do anything, they weren't taught to be appreciative or grateful of anything. But the worst thing that you can do, and I want you to listen to me carefully. This is so important. The worst thing that you can do as a parent or a guardian is raise your children without God in their life. Amen. That's the worst thing you could ever do. Yes. You can be forgiven for a lot of things, but when you send your own children to hell because you taught them that there is no God and there's no advantage of of serving a God and that there's no judgment, they can live any way they want and they don't have to account to a God because there is no God, that is almost unforgivable. That you will pay for more than any other sin that you've ever performed or did. Matter of fact, Jesus says that if you offend one of these little ones, talking about his children, he said, you might as well tie a millstone to your neck and jump in the ocean. Amen. Amen. A millstone necklace is laid up for you, and we send these children, after raising them in an environment like that, and sometimes we raise them in an environment where we serve a casual God, or we serve a God casually, or we we halfway serve a God. They know of God, but the little light they have in them, the little God they have in them, We send them off to a liberal college, and instead of getting educated, they get indoctrinated, and the first thing they teach them is philosophy 101, that there is no God. And they infuse that into them. They brainwash them with that, and they leave there either thinking and believing there's no God, or they at least leave there wondering if there's a God of their father and mother that they taught them about. And as a result, we now have a godless generation, they, them, those with no no moral compass pointing them in the right direction. And that's why parents shouldn't just hand their children everything that they want, especially when they show no appreciation for it. You should never reward laziness, and uh, you should only reward hard work. Just like the parable of the talents, you should never say, Well done, good and faithful child, if the job they did wasn't well done. Amen. Amen. Good preaching, Pastor. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. See, we're raising our children in a society that teaches them they don't have to work hard or put forth any extra effort because we don't keep score and everyone is going to get a trophy. There's no losers, and everyone is a winner. Everyone is treated the same. No child is going to be left behind. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then we give them a diploma that they weren't qualified for, and they come out of high school not even even being able to read, write, or do simple math calculations. But they made it, hallelujah. They didn't get left behind. And then when they get out into the world they get trampled over because they weren't prepared to compete. They find out real quick that there are winners and losers, and they're a loser because that's what they were raised to believe. They're not all treated the same in the world. And as Christians, we should be raising our kids on the Word of God. We should be teaching them faith and trust in a mountain-moving God that loves them unconditionally, that will always be with them, never leave them or forsake them. And with God, all things are possible for them. They can reach for the moon. We're to teach them that they're going to have difficult times in life, that not everyone is a winner and and, uh, not everyone gets a trophy. Teach them to compete, but teach them that they're also going to, whatever they come up against, they're also going to be able to overcome and be victorious over. Teach them to be fighters. Teach them that failure is not an option. Teach them to fight for what they want. Give them vision. Give them goals in life. Give them chores to do. Give them something that you can praise them for when they complete it and they've done a good job. Tell them, well done, my good and faithful child. Hallelujah. Uh, let's move on a little bit further. (laughs) I want you to notice how these warning signs that we read in 2 Timothy 3 are progressive and how one sin always leads to another that's greater. If you're a lover of your own self, then you will be covetous. And if covetous, you'll be a bolster. And if a bolster, you'll be proud and disobedient to parents. And if you're all of these things, you will be unthankful and unholy. You know, it's a terrible thing to be living in a free nation like ours that was paid for with the shed blood of our veterans and our patriots and then be unthankful, ungrateful, and unappreciative of what you have and what it costs. We live in such a materialistic world where it is almost commonplace that people take things for granted without really realizing all the things that they have to be thankful for we've become like selfish children that have no respect or appreciation for anything and you could tell by the way they handle their toys and their the way they treat their clothing and other property they're never satisfied and they always want more and when they get more they flip it around a few times throw it off and want something else And that's what they're going to take into adulthood. Our grandchildren, Tyler, Ethan, Matthew, and uh, Shannon, they know the fastest way to stop the the flow of blessings from Papa and Mama is to be disrespectful or show us that you don't appreciate what we did for you or, or what we gave you. I'm telling you, it will cut it off at the knees. You won't get no more blessings from us. Amen. And you don't hear, well done, good and faithful child, unless the job they did was well done. And, and, you know, the Holy Spirit has revealed through the Apostle Paul here that when this unthankful attitude has become widespread as it is in our society today, it would be one of the signs that we have entered into the last days. Congratulations, we have arrived. When people are thankful and have reverence for God, and when they recognize that He is the source of all good things, the source of all blessings, then it will help them to live a more godly life. And we all need help in this area. I know, you know, we could get proud proud, real easy, especially if you've got a good, well-paying job with benefits. You can say, look what I bought. Look what I have. Look how great I am. And you forget to recognize God. And let me tell you something. You're two weeks away from a soup line. Two paychecks away from a soup line. And, and, you know, had it not been for God, where would I be today? I don't even want to think about it. Amen. 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 And so uh, we could all use help in this area. But people as a whole that don't fear God are usually unthankful by nature, ungrateful by nature. And when you no longer reverence God, you will drift further and further Away, why do you think we harp on church attendance so much? It don't take long until you've drifted. To, you miss a little here, a little there, and before you know, you're out of church altogether. We've seen it happen too many times. I know what I'm talking about. And so we emphasize: you need to be here. You need to hear the words. You need to be encouraged. You need to have fellowship with other believers. This is what's going to get you through the tough times. And besides that, the wolf only eats the stragglers. Amen. Stay with the pack and you're safe. Yes. Stay under the anointing and you're protected. Amen. Hallelujah. But you, you know, when, when you start drifting further and further away, you will soon lose your fear of judgment and you will begin to tolerate and accept the things that you used to condemn and would have never accepted yes. or would have never done. And when a person or a nation loses their reverence for God, a process begins that will eventually lead to unholiness. That means living without God. And the words unholy in the Greek has an A in front of it, just like we talked about with thankful and unthankful. And the A once again means it is something that was once holy, but now has become unholy. What was once reverent has become unreverent what was once respectful has become disrespectful and this depicts a person or a nation that has gone through a degenerating transformation and it's no longer what it once was and this is a picture of of our nation right now and it's hard to make a comeback from that if not impossible hebrew 6 6 says It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. What people? Unholy people. Back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. God is never going to allow his Son to be crucified again. He is never going to allow his Son to be publicly shamed again like he was in ancient Rome. And these people that want to pull down his statues and destroy the artwork that depicts him better think twice. It's not a statue of some American so-called hero that they're tearing down. Our nation has slowly become irreverent and disrespectful of God, of our government, and of our laws. And we've lost our fear of God, and this is a perfect description of our country and this present-day Generation, here's your sign. Proverbs twenty three seven says, "For a man, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he." In other words, what a person thinks and believes will profoundly affect the way that they behave and affect their actions, and it's no different for a nation. If a person believes they will give an account to God or their parents or to to the authorities for their behavior, it will positively affect the way that they behave, and the the more lawless the country becomes, the worse the behavior will become. Why? No no, uh, uh, fear of retribution, no fear of accountability, no fear of consequences. I can do whatever I want, and I know I won't get caught, or I know the police ain't going to come after me. If your children know that they're going to give an account to you and their little behinds are going to be set on fire when they disrespect you or they do something that you told them not to do, it will change the way that they behave and it will change positively. And on the other hand, if a person doesn't believe they'll give an account to God or the authority or their parents, uh, for that matter, it reduces him to living for things that have no eternal value and with no concern for consequences. But they're being misled, they're being deceived because there is an authority. There is a God, and we're all going to be held accountable for our behavior someday. And that's why we're experiencing such an increase of crimes in our country right now, in the world for that matter. No fear of God or authority, and no knowledge of real consequences ...for their actions because they were told there is no God. There is no judgment. There is no consequences. You can live and do whatever you want and you won't be held accountable to nobody. And when people don't really believe God will hold them accountable for their actions... ...they do whatever they want and they do it without a sense of shame or conviction. And they think there is no consequence for their behavior... ...but they're wrong. There is a consequence... And they will give an account for their lack of fear and their lack of reverence towards God. And when a nation like ours loses its fear of God and has no fear of divine judgment, then it's just a matter of time before that nation begins to boldly and defiantly violate God's moral laws first, man's civil laws next, and with no fear of accountability or consequence for their actions Here's your sign. We're not only there, but we've been there for a while. We have already crossed that threshold, and that's happening in our country right now, today. And they're the ones that are pulling down statues because they want to erase history. And once they get that all done, when we reprint our history books, they're going to leave out anything that they deem offensive. That's going to be their next demand. And when people start pulling down statues and erasing the history of a nation, which really can't be changed, you can stick your head in the sand and say something didn't happen, but it still happened, and it still affected this country, and it still has something to do with where we are today. Why can't we just realize that there were some people in history that did some bad things and leave it at that? No, we got to pull (laughs) this... statues down and erase them from the history books and that's not going to change one little thing when people start this behavior pulling down statues, erasing the history of a nation, abolishing police departments altering their constitution rioting and destroying property, it's the beginning of anarchy that's the way every Marxist communist country has ever started and and Besides that, they first took took away their guns. Losing our fear of God and the fear of divine judgment, the fear that God is going to one day judge us for our behavior, has caused our nation to become impure, improper, unclean, crude, vulgar, offensive, and rude. And all of these things are included in that wonderful little Greek word that was translated unholy. On the other hand, whenever a person, a family, a nation recognizes God, it will live by a higher moral standard. But when God is removed from that person, family, society, nation, it will start start down a slippery slope to sin and unholiness. Here's your sign. We're there now. And just watch television on any given night, and you will quickly realize that was what was once considered to be unholy, impure, God describes as being lewd, ill-mannered, improper, crude, indecent, vulgar, offensive, and rude. All those things are now considered family entertainment. Things that we would have never said or watched or allowed on television is now family entertainment. Look at some of these stupid, I call them stupid, I don't care if you like them, you watch them every week or not, these stupid reality shows. They're stupid. Who cares what goes on in that whacked-out household? I mean, who cares if you got a boyfriend getting out of prison? I don't care about none of that junk. You're not impressing me with that stuff, and I ain't watching it. I have to suffer through the commercials. That's bad enough. It's bad when you have to change the channel to get through a commercial because you don't want your kids to see what it is. But we're living in that society right now that is blinded by the God of this world, who is Satan. Paul called him the God of this world. And people are oblivious to the deception that's taking place. And they're willingly ignorant of the fact that they're being played by the devil. Let's look at some of the things. I'm getting ready to close here shortly. But let's look at some of the things, just a few of them, that happen when a nation or society loses its respect and reverence for God. We go from praying in school and reciting a Pledge of Allegiance that clearly makes reference to God to making it illegal even to mention his name in a public school. Here's your sign. We're past that. Because now they want to remove every statue and painting of Jesus and break stained glass windows that have any resemblance of religion. That's not going to erase Jesus. He's still coming back and he's still going to judge the world. Public recognition of God is illegal, and certain scriptures have been labeled as hate language and can't even be quoted or read in public. They're trying to keep pastors and church leaders from speaking the truth of God's word if it offends someone. And I hate to even say this. It pains me to say it. But some of them are obliging the government and they're shying away from those scriptures that might offend somebody. Let me tell you something. It ain't you offending them. It's God offending them. If they get offended from the word, it's because they're offended at God. They can't get offended at you because you didn't say it. You just quoted it. And so I'm sorry, but I have to keep reading the word, preaching the word exactly like it's been written in the Bible. And I ain't changing it for nobody. Nobody. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's go on a little bit further. But, you know, the only reason it offends you is because you know it's the truth and you know it's talking about you. Why would you get offended at the truth? Religious freedom in our Constitution has been misinterpreted to mean freedom from religion. In other words, we don't want religion in the government, but uh, we want a God-free society, a God-free government. And separation of church and state was written with the intention of keeping the government out of the church and not the other way around. God has shown us, I mean, that's why we came and started this country, to get away from religious oppression. God has shown us in advance that this was going to happen and it's happening right before our very eyes. We're living in the last of the last days. We are living in the end times. Jesus is getting close to coming back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. One preacher said, you know how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? One preacher said he had a vision of heaven and Jesus was standing. Think about it, man. My good friend, Pastor Flint. True Vine Worship Center in Freeport has been teaching this excellent series on light the last couple of Wednesdays. Part one was let there be light and part two was you are the light of the world. And and Pastor Flint said, we have to let our light shine in these last days like never before. We have to let God's light shine through us. He said we have to let the fire of God burn in us. And he said, uh, he was talking about where in the scripture in Revelation where it says, I would that you, I'd rather you be hot or cold, because if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Yeah. And and he said something interesting, and I'm going to paraphrase, it. I might not get it exactly right. But he said, not only should our light shine, but it should be like a fire. A fire will draw someone to it on a cold winter's night, and we should be drawing those people that are cold and lost and outside By the warmth of a fire, we should be a fire that they are drawn to. I'm telling you, if I'm in a a dark woods and I'm lost and I see a light in the distance, I'm headed toward the light. But we're not showing them a light. They don't know which way to go. They don't know how to find themselves. They don't know how to find Jesus if our light is under a bushel. We need to get the bushel off our light. Why am I saying this? Because this is what we're to do in the last days. This is what we're to ramp up. This is what we're to stoke the fires of, the fires of revival. We're supposed to let our light shine in these last days like it's never shined before because there's lost people out there looking for a light. There's cold people out there looking for some warmth, and they're not finding it in the world. And unfortunately, they're not finding it in the church either. Yes. We need to show the love of God first to our families, then to our friends, our co-workers, and all those that come near us. God said we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that word neighbor comes from a Greek word, nay for nigh and bore for by. In other words, we're to love those that are nearby It don't make any difference who they are, what color they are, where they came from. If they're near me, I'm supposed to love them. Amen. Amen. I'm supposed to be a witness. I'm supposed to show them a light. Something that will draw them to the kingdom of God. Check your lights. Amen. Amen. Check your lights. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. Thank you, Lord, that for this word to come forth today. I think it's a timely word. I think it's time that we start preparing, that we start focusing on the finish line because it is in sight. And instead of slowing down or hitting the sidelines and, 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 and re- relaxing and resting on our laurels, we should be kicking it up a little bit. We should be ramping it up. We should be running harder and trying to finish strong. And the only way we're going to do that is by leaning on you and trusting you and keep our eyes on the signs. We don't want to be one of those that can tell the weather but don't know when you're coming back or don't know the season that you're coming back, Lord. We're children of light. We're not in the darkness. We're not going to be caught by surprise. You're not going to sneak up on us as a thief in the night. At least I pray you can't because we're alert. We're watching. We're like the five wise virgins. We trimmed our lamps, and we waited, and we watched. And when the bridegroom came, we were ready to go. Hallelujah. So we thank you and we praise you that this message is going to cause us to rise up, to rise and shine in these last days like never before, and be a witness to our family. Like Brother Hagin said, preach the gospel everywhere you go, and when necessary, use words. Your life is the best witness you'll ever have. People don't want to know what you know. They want to know what you are, who you are, how you live. That will impress them more than something you have to say. So make us that example, Lord. Make us that witness. We thank you and we praise you for it. Give you all the glory and honor in your son's name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, thank you, Facebook family, for joining us. I hope you got something out of this. If, if you liked it, hit the like button. If you want to share it, think somebody needs to hear it, hit the share button. We'd appreciate that. God bless you. We love you and appreciate you. See you Wednesday night. This concludes this message